men. All right, well, tonight we are going to uh, be in Psalm 78. Now, um, we are going to be uh, looking at, uh, this is a very long psalm, so there's about 72 verses, if, I, if, I remember, if memory serves. Yeah, 72 verses, so we're actually going to look at the first 31 verses. There's a little typo up there, but it's verses 1 through 31 is what we will be looking at tonight. And uh, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. I'll be bringing the text up on the screen. So Psalm 78, verses 1 through 31. Hear the word of the Lord. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the generation might know them, the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God. And not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, or generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the lands of Egypt, in the fields of Zon. He, di he divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rocks so that the water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he led out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp, all around their dwellings, and they ate and were filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word.
You've probably heard a version of the uh, statement, if you forget the lessons of the past, you're doomed to repeat its mistakes. I, I do love history. I love learning about it. I love thinking about it and how the present relates to the past and what we can learn to, uh, to improve our future. Uh, now, I, I was, um, may not be surprised, I was a social science major in college with a minor in history. So it's kind of social science, like half political science and half history, and then plus a minor in history. And uh, I had a wonderfully, um, uh, a wonderfully useless degree at the end of it, but it was very informative and interesting. Now, uh, um, one course I took in my studies was called historiography, which was a, uh, a class that sounds like a nightmare to many. It's a, it's a class on the history of writing history. And, um, and so, uh, uh, and now my take on that class was it was the, uh, it was the attempt, it's basically a class where a professor attempts to make you cynical about everything. Um, and so he, because my class, my professor led the class by stating basically that old, you know, learning from history bit was just a bunch of nonsense because we never do learn from history and we always repeat the mis mistakes of the past anyway. So why bother? Um, that's basically what my professor said. And then he had us read a book about all the lies we had been told as children, especially about American history. Now, it turned out that book was filled, uh, was filled with a lot of exaggerations and poor scholarship. But um, I did in that class, helpfully learn about the uh, concept of author bias and how that can affect an author's writing. And so it doesn't mean that what they're saying is not true, but always remember they're human and they have a perspective. They have an approach. They have a goal they're trying to accomplish. And uh, our text tonight is actually no different. Now, just because you have a bias doesn't mean you're wrong. <laughs> so, uh, so our text tonight is no different. Our, the psalmist definitely has a bias. He definitely has an intention. He has a purpose and a goal in his writing. And because he is writing all about the history of Israel. This raises a question of what do we do with the history of Israel? Uh, we, don't, uh, we have mixed uh, ideas about this in the church. Some would receive the history of Israel with not a whole lot more than a yawn and, and just kind of dismiss it. Uh, others might respectfully receive it, but still not know what to do with it. Um, but the psalmist, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has written this song about the history of the nation of Israel. And he is very clear about his objectives in writing it, about what lessons we ought to learn from the history of Israel. Now, for us as Christians, when we hear the history of Israel, we need to... Um, uh, it's not just the history of a nation or the history of a wonderful nation or even a nation that belongs to God. Um, as uh, Stephen Nichols in the Ligonier Church History uh, podcast, he, he, he always has this little statement at the beginning. He talks about church history, which is also true, especially of Israel's history, which is this is our history. This is, this is our story. This is our family history when we read about Israel. And so we need to pay attention. We need to know it so we can learn from it. And, um, and so, uh, so we're, we are only um, uh, going to deal with the first, basically, half of the psalm tonight. And we'll look at the next half next week. Uh, and in doing so, we're going to uh, first cover the, cover wa consider why we do, in fact, need to know the past. And then, secondly, we're going to consider two lessons that we are to learn from the past 
And then also, uh, and also we are going to consider how God not only disciplines his children before, but disciplines his children today. So first, let's look at how we need to know the past. This is what verses 1 through 8 is all about. And so this is really about education and the drive for education. And so uh, consider here what I'm just going to call the method for education from the psalmist in verses 1 through 5. Uh, Now, the psalmist calls us to listen to him as he proclaims teaching, as he proclaims a parable of instruction, what he calls the dark sayings from of old. Um, And and now these are the things uh, that the people of God have heard and have known, he says. These are the things that their fathers have told them before. And so what he's about to share is not something new. New things are not bad. Um, Even recently, new things are not bad. The scriptures say, in fact, that one day God is going to make all things new. So we know that new things are not bad. But what is it that that, that makes something a classic? You know, someone someone says, oh, that's a modern classic. You're like, no, it's not, because that is a contradiction in terms. Right? There's no such thing as a modern classic. Right? So you're saying that's been popular for a few decades, but that's not like a classic. What makes something a classic? Well, it's tested over time. And the longer it's tested over time, the more of a classic it becomes. New worship songs are great. You know, I love the hymns by the Gettys. Um, but, one, and, but also one of, the, one of the reasons so many of our hymns come uh, from hundreds of years ago is because they've had hundreds of years. There have been far more hymns written than what are in our hymnal or in all a bunch of other hymnals, but a lot of those songs were not good. They had bad tunes. Um, even 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 all the even all the songs that make it in our hymnals don't always have the greatest tunes. But uh, but they have. Uh, uh, but over time, these bad hymns they'll, they'll filter out. Some of the lyrics are not good. Some of the things they filter out, and the ones that stay true. I mean, we're singing. Well, you know, sing a mighty fortress is our God. You're singing the song from uh, the beginning of the Reformation, right? In the early 1500s. Uh, you, you know, if we go back, you can go back to um, that. You can trace some of the, the song, the hymns that we sing back to the 1200s, all right? Uh, so it, we can tr- trace these back uh, really, really far. And even how much more is that true of the Psalms, right? So that's a, there's only one inspired hymn book, and that's the one that's in our Bibles. The author says that we, uh, we will not hide these truths from our children. Rather, instead, we'll tell them to the coming generation. And so the audience then that he's speaking to, that he's seeking to educate, would be ultimately the children and grandchildren of the people of God. He finally comes to the content of this education, which is the glorious deeds of Yahweh that focuses upon his might and his wonders. In verse 5, we are told that Yahweh also established a testimony in law, which he commanded the fathers to teach to their children. And all this amounts to the fact that there is a blessed responsibility that we have to pass on the knowledge of God from one generation to the next. That is one of our responsibilities. We must note that there may be a sinful impulse, not only in society, but even in the church, to hide the things of God from the coming generation because we find them uncomfortable or boring. 
We may be tempted to conceal the past, especially when it, con it concerns our own failures or the failures of those who have gone before us. We may say that we have too much going on in the present to be that concerned about the past, but the scripture affords us no such excuses. These would be terrible errors, in fact, on our part, because they would lead our children and their children into spiritual ruin. We have here a man presenting what amounts to an oral education on the history of the Lord and his deeds, his deeds and his words to his people. Which brings us to the purpose of this education in verses 6 to 8. As I said earlier, the author has a bias. The author has an agenda, as we like to say. Isn't it funny? It's like, it sounds so suspicious. You're like, do you have an agenda? I'm like, of course I have an agenda. I'm not just aimlessly wandering about. I have an agenda for everything, right? Just because I have an agenda doesn't mean it's bad, right? And so, he, well, he has an agenda. He is a servant of Yahweh and desires to be faithful to God. And this author's purpose is generational and personal. It is generational in that he wants the next generation and beyond to know the deeds and words of Yahweh such that when they have grown and have children of their own, they will pass on that blessed heritage. His, his goal is also personal, not for himself, but for the children that he is educating and teaching because he, he wants the children who learn these things, these things about Yahweh, the things about his great and glorious deeds. He wants them to learn uh, his word and his deeds so that they would set their hope on the Lord. And further, that they would not only set their hope on the Lord, but that they would be obedient to his commands. Negatively, I mean, he wants them to avoid something. You know, we've all had those conversations with people where we are saying, look, I just want you to avoid my mistakes, right? And so he's saying, look, I want you also to avoid the mistakes. I find it interesting, the same fathers who told us these things are the same fathers that I don't want you to be like. <laughs> you know, it's just like, I want you to learn from the fathers, but I don't want you to be like the fathers. Why? Because they did some really bad things that proved disastrous for them, and you need to pay attention to that. Not everything they did was bad, but they did some very serious things that were wrong and we need to avoid. And so he, he wants those who hear his words to avoid spiritual disaster, which is defined by forgetting God's deeds and God's words, and in so doing, to make the same mistake as their ancestors who were stubborn and rebellious and unfaithful to God in their hearts. Now, these considerations, this kind of generational and personal goals of this, uh, of the, of, for education that the author has here should inform our own goals for educating ourselves and the children of the church. Our goal in learning the scriptures when we engage in Bible studies or Sunday school is, is not merely to just fill our heads with knowledge or to celebrate how wonderful we are as modern believers. Our desire... And teaching the things of God is that we would learn, and our children with us would learn, to set our hope on God, to obey his commands, and then to pass those on to our children and their children's children. But note here that the psalmist understands that in order to do that, we need divine history. And so, uh, and so he comes to present that to us. 
Now, examples for our own need for history abound. We could, uh, so right now, Boaz is in his um, research, uh, um, uh, the research part of his curriculum. He's studying the history of astronomy. So he's studying all these famous astronomers going back to Hipparchus and uh, Galileo and Copernicus, and uh, soon he'll be looking at Isaac uh, Newton and, um, and, go, and going forward. And, and what's amazing is how, is that every scientist that comes on, they don't go, you know what, I don't need anything that came before me. I'm just going to start from zero here, right? They, they know, they, like each one relied upon the work from the other, correcting the mistakes of the one who came before. I mean, the difference between Galileo and Copernicus is pretty massive. Galileo was the geocentric guy that said the Earth was at the center of the universe. And Copernicus was like, no, actually the sun's at the center of the universe. Was that, is that right? What is who it? Oh, Ptolemy, that's right, that's right. Galileo said heliocentric, right? Okay, sorry, Galileo corrected Ptolemy. See, I'm getting corrected over here. So, um, so uh, uh, see, what happens when you teach them is they correct you. That's, the, that's one of the dangers. So, um, but, but Ptolemy came up with a geocentric model, where, which said the Earth was at the center, and then, that, and then Galileo came along and corrected that, and then Copernicus came and refined that even more. Okay, so they, came, so they come by working off, correcting the mistakes of the past, advancing uh, into the future. Um, even even in the church, uh, there was a um, Ligon Duncan, uh, um, who's a uh, the, he's the chancellor of the Reformed Theological Seminary uh, as a whole, and he has a great lecture on the RTS website on on worship and how to lead worship, how to organize worship and structure worship for the church on Sundays. And one one piece of advice he gives right at the beginning of the lecture is, don't try to come up with all of this on your own, by yourself. Dig in and use the very best of the reformed heritage, the traditions. Like a lot of people have thought about these things and worked on these things over many, many years. Don't act like you're the first one on the scene ever to want to lead a worship service, right? There are people who've gone before you that you can learn from and improve upon even. And so in science and even in worship, we can learn from the past, including the successes and the mistakes. But we need to learn from the past. And so it is with the history of Israel. And there are two lessons that we are to learn tonight here. The first is do not repeat the sins of the past. First, first lesson is watch out for the sins of the past. And he's got two that he's really got his eye on here. Um, and, and the first here is he says, do not forget God in verses 9 through 16. Now, verse 9, the, the psalmist starts talking about the Ephraimites and their defeat. And uh, Ephraim was uh, one of the tribes of Israel, um, but in time they came to represent, uh, kind of as a name, to represent the northern kingdom. And the details here are too vague to really pinpoint a specific battle uh, where they failed. Uh, but uh, we, have, um, uh, we have records of de defeats in Ephraim by, at the hands of the Philistines and the Assyrians. But again, like this could be another battle. Uh, but I, th I think Derek Kidner, the scholar, is right that Ephraim is being used here as a, essentially to represent the uh, unfaithful people of God, the unfaithful Israelites who were defeated by the enemy as a punishment for their sin. The author gives a few examples of God's wonderful works on behalf of his people from the Exodus uh, to the wilderness wanderings. 
God had brought them up out of Egypt, passing them through the, the Red Sea. I really like the, the verbiage there, which apparently looks like he's borrowing from Ex- Mo- the Song of Moses in Exodus 15, talking about how he piled the waters up like a heap, like a mound of dirt almost, the way he talks about it. And uh, he led them in the wilderness by cloud by day, fire by night. He even gave them water from the rock. He gave them manna from heaven, right? But, he says, they forgot his works and his wonders. Even more, they, 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 they failed to keep his covenant. And not only that, but they refused to order their lives by his word. That word refuse that he uses has undertones of disgust and rejection. Kind of like, like obey the commands of God, that's kind of the last thing I want to do. It's kind of that sense of it. And it is amazing how forgetful we can be. We have to be careful not to comfort ourselves to say that we would never be like them. Right? That we would never refuse to obey God's commands. How often over time have we just carelessly treated the work of the cross like a dull or boring thing? How often have we been in crisis and made prayers or promises to God only to forget them all too quickly once the pressure was on? We need to remember, not forget, but to remember to actively engage our minds and preach to our hearts about Yahweh and his glorious deeds. We need to set them before ourselves and before our children that they and we may know them, believe them, and that we may repent and obey. And so he says, do not forget God. And secondly, in verses 17 to 20, do not test God. In spite of all these wondrous uh, deeds that God had done for them, uh, he said the people doubted God and tested him. That is, they demanded God do things for them. They demanded food that they craved. Um, one one. One uh, Hebrew or one Jewish uh, scholar translated this section as to say they, they demanded food for their gullet. <laughs> they, just, they, they, they were lusting after food. And note uh, that we, we read this testing, according to the author, as a testing from the heart, from the inside. Further, it was rebellion because they even spoke against God, doubting God's ability to provide for them in the face of his promises and the amazing things he had already done for them. And so, and we also need to or, consider the order of the connection that the author provides for us. Forgetting God's words and works leads to rebellious testing. You don't rebelliously test the Lord if you have remembered what he has done for you. But if you forget what God has done, well then rebellious testing is probably not that far away. He says they forgot what Yahweh had done for them in Egypt. They had forgotten what he had done for them miraculously in the wilderness thus far. And we need to not think that if, you know, if only God would do something amazing, if if only God would do something miraculous, then I would never doubt him. Right? 
The answer rather lies in remembering the word of God and the works of God such that we would not forget them. That we would read his word, gather together for worship, encourage one another in times where we may be tempted to get forgetful. Because as we recall the works of God in Egypt, in the wilderness, in Israel, in the cross, and even in our own lives, in the history of the church, we are reminded that the Lord is great and powerful in every circumstance. Then we start saying things like the Apostle Paul, that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That I can endure in every circumstance, whether I'm full or whether I'm going hungry that night. I can do all things. So we are given here two sins to avoid. And the second and final lesson that the psalmist has for us tonight is simply that God disciplines his children. So first, let us consider in verses 21 to 31 the way of discipline the Israelites, the author says, uh, angered God because, in verse 22, it wasn't this even just the specifics of what they did, but in reality, what they did was they did not believe God and they did not trust his saving power. Yet, in spite of that, he feeds them with manna from heaven. I mean, that statement, he wants us to marvel at it. Men ate the bread of angels. You know, it's the, the, you know, the, the, the kitchen from heaven. You know, the, ba- the heavenly bakery sent down bread. He poured out meat like dust covering the ground with birds to kill and to eat. Yet, as often is the case, the more God gives, the less his people appreciate not only the gifts, but the one who gives them. And as the people gorged themselves in the meat, God struck the strongest males and killed them. And we are reminded here that God at times will give us over, even his own people, his own church, will give us over to our sinful desires and lusts so that we may be reminded of the, uh, the evil of sin and that sin is a terrible master. This is true in the broadest sense, as Paul talks about, of of the world in Romans chapter 1, as the wrath of God being revealed uh, there. God is uh, delivering over, even today, those who deny the true knowledge of God and just giving them over to their own passions and lusts. And ultimately, it will be to their own destruction. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanging natural relations for unnatural ones. God does at times employ a similar tactic with his own children, giving us over to the sins and lusts we nourish privately or even not so privately in our lives. But in doing so, having plunged into sin, we realize our mistake, even if it takes a little time, and we turn and we run back to the Father. This is the way of discipline. But also we must consider here the necessity of discipline. And we're reminded here of Proverbs chapter 3. It instructs us not to hate the discipline of God or to be weary under it. But to know that the discipline of the Lord 
is the sign of sonship, that we belong to him and that he is our heavenly father. God's discipline is painful. But as the author of the, of the book of Hebrews says, it is for our good that we may share in the holiness of God and bear righteous fruit if we will be trained by it. So the question comes not whether or not we will be disciplined. We will be. If we are children of God, we will come under divine discipline because our Heavenly Father loves his children. The question is, will we, will we be the sons and daughters who, who chastise the parent for disciplining us? How dare you discipline me? That kind of attitude. Or will we be his children who submit and learn from it? That we should abandon sin and take hold of the promises of God and order our lives by his word. Now the focus up to this point in the psalm on the sins of Israel may lead us to a negative conclusion about the purpose of this psalm. Uh, that, it's, that it's meant to you know, really kind of bring us down. Uh, it reminds me of actually the book of 1 John, which is often viewed as a very painful and hard book because John spends a good uh, um, section of 1 John calling out sin and hypocrisy in the church. But John, and, and in fact, this was actually even a question on an, uh, our presbytery uh, exam in or, for ordination, um, had, uh, had one committee member ask this question, uh, which was, uh, what do you make in light of how we should preach 1 John in light of 1 John 5.13. Because in 1 John 5.13, he tells us the reason why he writes this. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Oftentimes people cite the book of 1 John as the book that makes them question whether or not they have eternal life. But his, pur his purpose is his desire there is for his audience to know that they would have eternal life. It's quite the opposite. So maybe it has to do more with the perspective of our approach to that book. Similarly here, the author of this psalm doesn't write to us to, uh, to burden us down with how sinful and awful things are. But rather so we can have confidence. We can have confidence when we go to the Lord, when we... That, that we have confidence when we look back and we remember his glorious deeds on our behalf and the behalf of his people, that we would set our hope on the Lord. Remember at the beginning, saying, this is why I'm telling you this, because I want you and your children and your children's children to know the Lord so you can set your hope on him, so you can walk in obedience to his commands. And so we need to remember then, in light of these words from the psalm, psalmist the great and glorious wonders that God has done for us and to rejoice to remember Christ and his cross and his resurrection to remember the promises of his return his promise to always be with us the promise of the beautiful promise and reality of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in his people we need to take his word and to cherish it and to order our lives by it that that, the, that our generation and the generations that come after us would look back upon us and give us thanks because we were faithful not to conceal the deeds and the words of God, but to share them and to sing them and to live by them unto his glory and the joy of his people. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you teach us about the history of the church. A history that goes back all the way to Israel itself. That you lay out the failures and sins of, the, of those who went before us to remind us that no one of the Old Testament saints is perfect. That everyone needs to be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in the promise and the covenant. And Father, we pray that we would humble ourselves in view of the Israelites and their history. That we would seek to avoid the sins that they committed. That we would not forget you. And may we not test you. And Lord, when we come under discipline, when we come under times of hardship and affliction, may we never shake our fist at you, but rather may we humble ourselves under your mighty hand, as Peter says, that we may, in trusting that in due time you will lift us up. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to bear that testimony to our, to our children, to our grandchildren, to the community of faith that is around us, that we may be faithful in passing on the Christian heritage, the truth of your word, the truth of your deeds, onto the next generation and, and the generation after that, all the way until Christ returns. And years to come, Lord, in, in eternity to come, may we meet those future generations. And may they rise up and give thanks to all of us who formed one small part of that chain. That was a part of, that was a part of bringing many sons to glory. And we pray your help upon us, Father. And may you use us in that, in that way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's respond.